everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Yohan Grillo, and Yohan is an author. His books include El Narco, Gangster Warlords, and Blood, Gun, Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels. And he's also a journalist. You can find his stuff in places like the New York Times and Time and Esquire. Hi, Yohan. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, so I got to ask, because uh, like I said, I've been following you a bit on Twitter. I think I mentioned that when I reached out to you. And then I've been seeing what you're writing about Mexico and stuff. But how did you get into writing about Mexico and Latin America? I mean, you know, you're, you're, we'd be talking earlier and you're in the UK and you're from the UK. So like, how did you get into that? Yeah, sure. Um, so in the year 2000, uh, I wanted to get into journalism. Uh, and back in those days, one of the ways to get into foreign international journalism was to work at English language newspapers, uh, which, you know, around, were around the world a lot uh, back in those days. And you could make a living as a journalist doing that and then get into writing for bigger international publications. And, and I'd already lived in Spain for a year uh, and spoke some Spanish. So I went to Mexico and I got a job. In, I arrived in Mexico in the year 2000, in the year 2001, got a job in the English language newspaper called The News, and I started right away, uh, I hadn't planned to, but right away started covering a lot of these big drug cartel stories, corruption stories, and that kind of thing. And then after a couple of years there, I started working for international publications, began with like, the Houston Chronicle, worked for the Associated Press before going on to later to the New York Times, Time Magazine and stuff. And, and as I did this, um, and I was covering the drug cartel issue, and it was really um, rising up. It was a real escalation of the violence in Mexico associated with this. So uh, when I'd been there for, for some eight years and was covering this, it became a real big international issue. You had film crews coming from around the world. Some of the film crews, actually, because you had a, a slight lapse in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, so you had the crews... TV crews who'd been in Iraq and Afghanistan, kind of rotating around to Mexico. Uh, and I was already, already been there eight years. I started working with a lot of these crews and working on documentary uh, films and series and that kind of things as well. And, you know, after a while, I realized I can't just tell this story in, in short stories and news pieces. Or, you know, I need to write a book about this. So I, I published my first book in 2011, and that became a trilogy with my third book uh, published this year. Hey, great. Now, like, when you got there in 2000, cause I'm, and I'm going to go by like memory. So it's probably very faulty. Um, but initially like when you hear, like, or, okay, when I at least think of cartels initially, you know, that comes to mind of Colombia mm. and then, but then, you know, I remember seeing a few things and there could be you know, on PBS or BBC. I'm not sure about how, you know, when it moved into Mexico, because instead of just being, a conduit for cocaine you can produce it there and grow it there and then just ship it up from there so had that already started in mexico when you got there in 2000 or was that still coming in from colombia or how is that yeah sure so uh, i mean the history of mexican drug trafficking you can trace it back at least 100 years mm -hmm. um in the year 1914 it's when the united states passed the harrison's narcotics tax act and it started restricting cocaine and opium so in that from then on, from 2015, sorry, from 1915, you had uh, initially it was Chinese Mexicans smuggling opium to Chinese Americans. 
in some of these very early cases you can look at, you can look at one case that the American custom agents looked at back in 1916 of this. And even back then you had a corrupt governor involved, you had this political corruption. And uh, so you've got this history of a, of a century of drug trafficking from Mexico. Uh, and, you know, it really boomed in the 1960s when American drug appetite started to really increase. So I think if you look at the, the the kind of modern uh, drug consumption we live in, you really got to look at the 60s when, when you know, drug consumption in the United States, in the UK, in Europe, in Canada, a lot of these countries started to really increase. One of the reasons I personally was felt connected a lot in the issue of drugs, I grew up um, just outside of Brighton in southeast England in a place with a lot of drug use. So I grew up around a lot of drug users. Um, uh, in the 1980s, I knew four teenagers or young men who died of heroin overdoses and the, the, the current uh, opioid epidemic in the united states i kind of lived a bit that growing up in the in, in the uk in the 1980s so um so i grew up around you know this drug thing but anyway the when i so you had the the, the big drug consumption in the 1960s cocaine use growing in the 1970s and then like you say you had originally cocaine being flown directly from colombia to the united states People just take planes, fly right over, you know, fly away from Colombia, go right over the Caribbean into Florida. So that was a big route. And then in the 1980s, under Reagan, you had uh, that route being cut off or being reduced. And so you had um, the the Navy, you had the uh, this uh, Miami task force going down there and a lot of uh, Navy DAs busting that. So the Colombian smugglers just said, well, we're going to bounce it through Mexico. The route had already, in fact, opened up from the 1970s of bouncing cocaine through Mexico. Um, you know, we call it sometimes the Mexican trampoline, you know, to bounce the cocaine from Colombia to the United States. Um, so you can just move the cocaine there into Mexico. You've got a 2,000 mile border and then get co cocaine over there. So by the end of the 90s, when I was arriving, um, it had become the majority, the vast majority. I mean, people talk about, you know, 85 percent or so of cocaine believed to be bouncing through Mexico at that point. So the cartels had become very wealthy by the time I arrived in Mexico. I also arrived in Mexico in the, the moment, in fact, that I arrived in Mexico the day before President Vicente Fox took power, ending 71 years of one-party rule. He had one party running the whole country for 71 years, at times running everything. I mean, literally every mayor, every police chief, every governor. Sometimes they gradually had opposition kind of coming in. And that ended. Now, this is, is part of what unleashed the violence. Uh, and one point of comparison is the Soviet Union, when you had, that was uh, 74 years, uh, I guess from 1917 to 19. 91 kind of 74 years 74 yeah 74 years of, of one party in control and then it kind of breaks up and then you have a lot of unleashing of of gangsters and violence when you have a political mm -hmm. system breaking down That's one of the reasons um that the violence was unleashed in the 2000s alongside this gradual enrichment of the cartels with cocaine money and then when i was in mexico they also moved very heavily into crystal meth money and then in more recently into fentanyl money and, and, and heroin money 
well, heroin's been around, but like into big, uh, taking advantage of the epidemic of, of opioids and heroin that have it's come about the last few years. Like your latest book, um, and I mean, I, you can, I guess you can go back to Iran Contra if you want, as far as arming, you know, drug cartels and stuff. But yeah, yeah. you know, um, but like how when you say they like they're arming the guns, uh, the gangs and the cartels, is it because of gun smuggling? I mean, I don't, or is it something like Iran Contra where they're actually getting like arms for for drugs type of thing? Yeah, yes. Um, so, so the main thing is the fact you've got gun firearms trafficking. Mm. Um, so you've got firearms trafficking from the legal U.S. market to the Mexican cartels. However, there are elements of the government being complicit or in these things. Now, Iran country you mentioned, and that's connected to this um, story. So you had um, a lot of those weapons given by the U.S. government to Central American countries in the 1980s in these fights, which are now being used by cartels um, in this fighting. So one example is the grenades. You had um, more than 67,000, uh, so I don't really know, I think there's hundreds of thousands, I'm sorry, hundreds of thousands of fragmentation grenades, M67 fragmentation grenades given to the Salvadoran forces in in the uh, that civil war. Now, afterwards, there were a lot of left in these big stockpiles, and these hand grenades are being stolen from those stockpiles and ending up being used by the drug cartels. So you have these gun battles, like one that happened in the city of Matamoros on the border with Texas, where the more than 300 frag grenades were, were thrown in one battle. Um, as an example, as well, of those, of those grenades being in the black market, <laughs> they were kind of crazy story. There's one, a uh, couple of them being smuggled into prisons. Uh, a one, uh, a, a, a woman went to visit her boyfriend in prison and she was found with a fragmentation grenade hidden um, inside her in between her legs. Um, uh, and he was smuggling it into prison to give the prisoners so he could try and blow his way out. In fact, this story just happened um, a couple of days ago. There was a, there was a, a grenade thrown in a Honduran prison um, where some MS-13 inmates were playing football and there's some Barrio 18 Barrio uh, 18 inmates threw a grenade into that into that football game and it, and it blew up while they're while they playing. I, I went into a, a hop into a Honduran prison and seen them openly carrying guns in there. I mean, it's gone crazy in there. So, so in one side you had that, then you know, other, other stories, for example, of the government complicity. Um, there's, a, there's various scandals that have been in the last few years. The most well-known is called Fast and Furious. So Fast and Furious, well, people might have heard about that already, named after the car racing movies. Um, and Fast and Furious was a scheme, an o- operation by the ATF, by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms and Explosives in the United States to build up a conspiracy case against gun traffickers by following the guns, going to the cartels. And they watched more than 2,000 or almost 2,000 firearms directly in the Fast and Furious operation. There was another related operation called Wide Receiver with about now close to 500 guns. And they were sitting there watching these guns be trafficked to cartels. Now, the way this played out was you had these, what are known as straw buyers. So somebody who's paid money to go and buy a gun. Um, They were paying them 
$50 for pistols, $100 for rifles, $500 for Barrett 50s. One of these guys spent half a million dollars going to shops in, in Phoenix buying these guns for cartels. And they just sat there watching him do it, watching him buy the guns, watching them take them to the cartels, watching them go down south of the border. And these were used in pretty brutal massacres. So this is kind of a pretty big scandal. That, that was actually underneath, that was under the Obama administration. That was under Eric Holder as the attorney general. So this is a big, that was a big, big thing happening there. But also you have got, uh, you know, and I've done a lot of interviews with firearms traffickers. Um, you've got really, um, in many ways, the firearm, the, the cartels being just going in and buying the guns very, very easily. And American politics stop, you know, not basic law enforcement happening really with this. So, for example, I mean, there's cases of people buying 85 guns in single sales um, for gangs. There's uh, multiple cases of people going in buying 10 AR, you know, 10, uh, 10 AK-47s, the same model, and they're for the cartels um, of, a, of a supposed housewife going and buying a Barrett 50 for more than $10,000 in cash and then going to shop and buying another one. So the, 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 way, the way they're doing this trafficking um, and, and when I went into this book, which is a very thorny issue in the United States, obviously the Second Amendment's huge, gun stuff's huge, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not, I'm not attacking people's right to bear arms or, or the, um, you know, the Second Amendment saying this is what's happening in terms of firearms trafficking. And you've got this enormous amount of firearms going to these cartels who are then carrying out huge amounts of violence in Mexico, um, where you've had more than 300,000 murders since 2007, um, you know, become one of the, you know, parts of it, the most violent cities in the world. You've got refugees fleeing that violence and then trying to apply for asylum in the United States. You've created kind of a chain of destabilization happening in the region because of the effects of this. So you, have, you see a lot of connections with these issues. Now, we'd been talking about this earlier. Like I've worked overseas now. I, a couple of things I saw when I was at, now, this story might be apocryphal. I don't know. But apparently in Afghanistan, uh, they'd done a buyback guns type of thing from the locals. So NATO had, was doing that. So people were coming in and bringing in, like, some of these guys were fighting with, like, old, you know, 1900s Enfields. Yes. Right? So they would come in with Enfields and they'd get cash, right? Okay, this is, this is your money. <laughs> now, some of these people went back and took that money they were given because it was more than the gun was you know, worth or whatever. And they could buy themselves an AK or they could buy themselves. And so like that backfired. And another thing it was, this was in, in Bosnia, but when it was Yugoslavia, apparently Tito had given every individual six anti-personnel mines and one anti-tank mine. So if the country mm -hmm. got overrun, defend yourself. And Bosnia is still, as far as I know, one of the more heavenly concentrated mined areas in the world. Like I remember seeing a map yeah. from where, when I were, where I was first stationed to Sarajevo and the whole highway was like one big red line of line mines. I mean, and they told you straight out, if you stop and you have to, you know, you have to pee, don't go out, like stay on the road, do not go on the side of the road, like stay on like the, the asphalt. If you're going to pee, it, mm. like they just said, the whole highway was mined. Yeah, so, so I went to Eastern Europe as part of the investigation for this book, and I went to the Zastava factory in Serbia mm. and, and the factory, uh, AK-47 factory in Kujia, Romania, mm. as well. I did a trace 
uh, or follow a trace of a gun from a fire from a murder scene in Mexico, in which an American agent of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, Jaime Zapata, was murdered, and and followed the whole route of those weapons to the factory um, in in the Cujia, Romania. Um, two guns, in fact, from that factory used by the a mob of a cartel called the Setas. Uh, one known as a Draco, which is a kind of uh, known as the smallest type of AK in the world, and one of them, uh, the, the Waza 10, is like longer one. So you had a. Uh, um, so in terms of the guns, I mean, in terms of the, the, the broader issue of guns, and I did, did look as well. I mean, I, you know, how firearms were, were, were also. It's interesting when you look at the, the, the kind of stories of these and how guns also leak to the Islamic State. Um, or you know, or the, or the Taliban and, and so forth, and you have these factories in, in the kind of these long, these long flows. And um, one of the things, I mean, you know, I don't pretend there's easy answers to these issues. Um, I do think in Western Europe, following the terror attacks, a lot, particularly in France in 2015, there was a lot of gun terror attacks. And if you look at the, the Bataclan um, um, disco attack, which is the worst mass shooting in, in Western Europe since World War II, then that firearm actually came from the Zastava factory. They wanted some of the guns there. We were taken from the Zastava factory. They'd been in a, a, a militia, in a Serbian militia, disciplined the black market and moved around. But following a lot of those shootings in 2015, there was a big effort in Western Europe to try and crack down on black market firearms, try and crack down on, on firearms in the criminal markets that terrorists can use. Um, and, and you see that as well, these kind of links between, and one of the things I've been looking a lot at in the last few years is this blurring between crime and war and terror. I think we see a lot of that in, 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 the, in, in the new century to understand a lot of the violence that's going on. So it was an attempt to crack down. I think it was successful in many ways. And we do see some of the more recent terror attacks in Western Europe have been with knives and cars and that kind of thing. And and they are less um, casualties in those cases. I mean, when you have a guy with a knife in a terror attack and you can see even cases like in London where a guy who was a Millwall you know, Millwall supporters, a middle-aged Millwall football hooligan, you know, came at this guy with a knife and, you know, took t- 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 being stabbed and survived. And, you know, it's very difficult to do that when somebody's spraying with, spraying with a gun. There's a difference with these things. Um, now, in the Americas, it's very, very different than Europe. I mean, you know, if you look at, um, obviously, the United States has, by the last estimate, 393 million guns in America in, in civilian hands. Um, it's more than the next 25 countries combined. So, so the number of firearms in the United States is, is way beyond um, anything in, 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 in Europe. In Mexico, there's a huge amount of guns around in Mexico in criminal hands. Uh, um, in, you, know, you go down El Salvador, Honduras. Um, but then you know, there's still got to be ways to reduce this. And one of the things I've been looking at you know, is, the, is the level of violence in cities in the, in the, you know, I've been covering violence the last 20 years. And so, you know, I also went into Baltimore, Maryland, mm-hmm. as part of this latest book, and looked at the violence there, the, you know, the gun violence in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I spoke to gun traffickers there, drug dealers there. One guy I also spoke to was uh, a guy called Dante Barksdale, who was actually one of the figures that the, the, the series The Wire was based on. 
in the series is called D'Angelo Barksdale. Um, and, and I spoke to him. He was then later this year, he was shot dead, in fact, in, in, in Baltimore. Uh, and so he's going to see how, how the gun violence plays out and, and how you have you know, the 50 most murderous cities in the world. You've got, in the recent years, about 47 of them have been in the Americas. Canada's the safe place in the Americas, obviously. The United, it's interesting, the United States often has about four of these cities. And often the same ones coming up. I mean, it's it's Baltimore. We're looking f- featuring there. It's St. Louis. It's uh, New Orleans. These are the ones, and then right across Latin America uh, and and you know Mexico will often have you know a very large number of these the cities that I've been covering in Mexico, and then you'll you'll see them right across in in you know various places Brazil and so forth, Honduras, El Salvador, these kind of places. So trying to understand how these places are so violent what it's like, how that plays out. And, you know, it's pretty um, horrific, how, I think, how people live with that level of violence, you know, across Latin America. And, and you know, what this means in terms of um, just, you know, really heavy strains and trauma you get on people um, living this kind of violence and how, how they, you know, how people can get out of this. Just like one thing, like when you're talking about the violence and all that. So I did a student exchange in '92, um, or whatever student exchange. Like I went and studied at the University of Sao Paulo, and then there was, uh, so and then there was a bunch of students from Brazil that came up to Montreal the following semester, and it was just that was like that's why I said an exchange. But I made friends with you know the pot dealer on or one of the pot dealers on campus, yeah. <laughs> and one day he's like, "Hey, come with me. I'm going to go get some." So. I jump on the back of his bike and we go to a favela mm. and he, he's getting his knapsack or whatever. And he pulls out a gun and I'm like, look at him. Like, what are you doing? He's like, what? He just, just assumed I had one. I'm like, look, I came here on a plane. Like, where do you expect me to get one from? And he's like, oh, I don't know. He goes, oh, you need one here. I was like, great. Like, where are you taking me? Just, so is, I mean, okay, there's a lot of gun violence in the States. And I mean, like, you know, you look, talk about like places, you had mentioned like Baltimore, you could talk about places like Chicago and stuff like that. But is that expected? Like in Mexico City, is that, you know, kind of like, okay, there's a 50-50 chance I'm going to see some gun violence on the street? Like, or like, how does, like, like what's the mentality of, the, of that? Like, they're like, like ordinary everyday people. Yeah, sure. Uh, let me just quickly answer you, uh, follow up on the Brazil anecdote and then, and then, then answer your question. So, yeah, I mean, for my second book, uh, Gangster Warlords, I have a big section on Brazil, looking at one of the, some of the big crime organizations in Brazil, including one called the Red Commando. Um, and, and I mean, I went into one of the favelas in Brazil, went to several favelas there. One of the favelas I went into, a favela called Antares on the outskirts of Rio de Janeiro. Um, where they were, yeah, just like guys riding around on motorcycles with um, guns and grenade launchers and blatantly selling drugs off the table. Um, and we went to a, what they call a funk party, Fabella Funk, and we actually went there. We stayed all night in this favela with these big booming speakers. And then one day they were dancing around with, the, with like, holding their, their, their guns up and doing this dance around the place. Um, and one of the fascinating stories about the Red Commando is that they were formed in the 1970s. And originally they were formed when the government locked up these bank robbers with these political prisoners. And they did it deliberately saying, well, the political prisoners who were these kind of 
left-wing communist political prisoners and it said you know well the the bank robbers are going to beat the crap out of these middle class you know uh you know rebels and you know, probably beat them up and rape them and stuff and that'd be that'd be funny but actually the opposite happened the the the, the bank robbers started organizing and you know like be, they came together and created became like a politicized bank robbers <laughs> and then, they, and then you know, they went out and started going to drug traffic and the, the, the red commando so they're kind of this weird crime family these kind of weird political origins they kind of see themselves kind of defending so the police and one of the police i i interviewed there in uh, from a, a hardcore hit squad who, who would go into the favelas um and and, uh, and i asked him if he'd you know been under gunfire much and he said like no i'm i'm i mean i'm in gunfights every, every week i go in there we're in gunfights I said, have you been shot? And he goes, I've been shot in the back of the neck. I've still got a bullet embedded in the back of my neck. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and in crazy stories he had. Um, and, and this kind of, you know, kind of weird, low-intensity war that plays out there. But the, the way that, said so the violence, the way this reflects um, and the reality of this, to, to kind of explain it to people, um, is this is a weird thing of you have normality and normal living around the violence. So it's not like you go into Mexico and everywhere there's violence all the time and everywhere you look, everyone's got guns all the time. First, you can, it varies massively across the country. You go to the tourist resorts, you're fine. The big tourist resorts like uh, Cancun, well, in the tourist resort, you're fine. There is violence in Cancun itself. There have suddenly been shootings in clubs and so forth. They're not totally fine. But a lot of the time you go to a tourist resort and you can be okay and not see anything. Um, you can be in Mexico City is not the most violent part of Mexico. But Mexico City um, is, uh, it's a big city of, of, of 20 million people, the whole urban area. Um, and it's got a level of violence, but it doesn't compare to the worst. Um, and it can, you know, but you've got parts of Mexico, which are really, really crazy. Okay. So some of the parts of Mexico and, and crazy stuff happening. Now, even in those really violent parts, you can go there and it can look normal. You think, oh, well, this is pretty normal to me. And then suddenly there could be a crazy gunfight happening and like crazy stuff. I mean, you know, you've talked, you've had things like the Culiacan, Aso, the city of Culiacan, where uh, the military and the police captured the son of Chapo Guzman. He has 700 to 800 gunmen on the streets fighting 350 soldiers. Well, that was kind of nuts. Um, you have, you know, this violence I've been covering where you just, you know, we drove along one day um, and there'd be a, been a guy shot in, a police commander shot dead having breakfast in a restaurant. We literally drove into his, his body was lying out on, on, on the ground. You know, we're filming that. And then they cleared it up and the restaurant actually set up and had and served lunch. So people could arrive there. So what I mean is people living around normal life around violence. People could arrive at a restaurant are having lunch. They didn't know the guy had been murdered there in the morning. So you have that now, you know, you also have you know, people living normal lives and then suddenly tragedy might strike a family. I'm not, you know, only talking about, you know, you have sometimes people who, you know, I've done a lot of interviews with, with the murderers themselves. I've interviewed a lot of, uh, of cartel killers, gang members, um, cartel traffickers, and these kind of people. Uh, and so you get really into their lives and where they're living, and they're living really in the thick of this. And they obviously, they're killing people themselves, carrying out murder, and they're, yeah, they're having extreme life. Um, but also you have regular people and you have middle class people who suddenly have tragedy that's been struck um you know a story um many many tragic stories one of them for example there's a tragic story from from a mother i interviewed in in, in monterrey who was looking for her son 
who had been taken by gunmen um, from her house. And she was a school teacher and he was an 18-year-old philosophy student, just begun at university, his first year of university. She had another 15-year-old son. And an armed group came to the house and just robbed the house and just took him. Um, never found him. Disappeared case. Um, don't know why exactly they take him as forced recruitment, which they can do sometimes. You know, just just to kind of try and get a ransom and then get some money and then kill him anyway. So a lot of time when you have, um, you know, what you have is really with the, with the drug cartels is, and in Mexico you've got very very heavy paramilitary organized crime. Um, they 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 like become paramilitary style groups, also sophisticated organized crime, also uh, people who have a political influence and a kind of and a kind of cultural influence, you know, kind of you know have this narco culture around them as well. And and you have that um then with this kind of presence there and how that affects society. So so it's a, so it's a kind of weird um a weird thing and and it but it does create uh, a, 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 a dark kind of dark note for everybody in society and it's certainly one of the reasons that people want to leave a lot of these countries um, when that level of violence is around just on that like you know I mentioned I was in Afghanistan so overall I was about seven years in Afghanistan now even if I was on a like okay when you're talking about the normalcy like if you had I like ISAF headquarters in Kabul there was this nice walled off little garden. You could have cappuccinos and espressos and you could sit down and relax. And I mean, it was, it just, you know, if you didn't hear the noise from the outside, you wouldn't realize where you were. It was, you know, it was a great place. Yeah. But, you know, I could have been on a base because I, you know, I was, I was a civilian contractor. So we did rotation. So you know, I'd work about two months and have a couple of weeks off that type of thing. Right. So I could have been on base for my whole rotation and not have actually left any base. But it wasn't until you actually, you know, I'd left Kabul and like, you know, we would land in Dubai or let's say wait until, you know, landed Europe somewhere. And you can actually feel stress leaving you because you don't realize until you get out of there, like, okay, it's always in the back of your mind that, okay, yeah, the base could get rocketed. I could have to, you know, go out tomorrow and, you know, I've been in vehicles that took small arms fire and things like that. Like, it's, so, I mean, there's things like that that's always in the back of your mind and you don't realize until you leave. So, is there like a buildup of stress kind of like that just in your average everyday life? Because if it's, you know, and I guess it, it depends on where you are. You Like you mentioned, I'm, not, I'm just assuming Juarez is worse than Mexico City, but that could just be yeah, a, yeah. a little bit like, so is there a buildup of stress like that? Or is that just, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so like say, say with Mexico City, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a violent city, it's a rough city, but you know, that's more comparable to, to living in a rough city in the United States, you know, where you've got a certain stress because of crime and, and violence and stuff, but it's, it's not totally off the chart for most people. Uh, and then you have uh, some of the places, I mean, let's look, you know, like somewhere like Reynosa, uh, Matamoros, you know, you've got right now there's been some crazy firefights there. So, so there you've got like, you have got trauma. And I think people, um, you know, you, you hear gunfights. I mean, I mean, you've got some crazy stuff happening. And some of it's not even being reported because some of the cartels will... And when I talk about cartels as well, we talk about mm -hmm. these organisations that are also effectively controlling 
local police in some cases. And, and you've got, you know, extremely corrupt security forces in Mexico. So you've got a complicated um, interplay of security forces and cartels, you know, coming out. But, uh, but you know, in some cases where a local police force will be completely under, you know, completely under control of a cartel. Um, and uh, and so, you know, you have some crazy stuff. I mean, some of the repressed reporting of it, where you have like long, prolonged gunfights happening right on the US border. And you know, I run it, it's three and a half hours, four hours, sustained gunfights happening. Um, bunch of bodies being, and then they clean up the bodies and, and repress the body count because some of the cartels don't want heat coming to their city. They're, they're controlling the city. They don't want more military and more Marines coming in because that will mess up with their operations. They want to you know, pretend things are quiet and things, things are okay there. So you have the, the, these, um, these things happening. And yeah, sure, prolonged stress and people leaving on them, especially people, and it can be like uh, journal, local journalists. And there's been more than 150 journalists who've been murdered. There was another murder yes, uh, yesterday. There was another a further murder of a journalist, a third journalist murdered this month in Mexico. Um, people who you know covering and just under stress, um, and, and just, just people as well. School kids. I mean, there's been cases of school kids and kids hiding under the table where fire, you know, gunfire has been happening. It's a very. I mean, if you look at the, you know, I would say understanding Mexican violence is a weird hybrid armed conflict. There's a debate around this, but like you have. Levels of violence and, and deaths comparable to armed conflicts. Um, groups, uh, armed groups comparable to armed conflicts. Use of the military and Marines comparable to armed conflicts. Uh, but without clear theatres. I mean, I went to uh, one time see the, the uh, Islamic State uprising in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So I went there in, in Marawi and, and saw there and you had a clear... They called it the MBA, the main battle area. And that area was constant fighting, you know, constant bang, 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 bang there. And then outside of that, there wasn't fighting. There was a cleared area, a whole buffer area, the whole city being cleared out. But then you go further out and, you know, you're outside the battle area. Whereas in Mexico, you've got kind of fighting cropping up in all kinds of places and not a clear, any clear delineation of, of where that battle area is fighting. Um, um, and, uh, and a lot of murders are happening by assassinations, by people being kidnapped off the street and then like murdered and their bodies dumped and bodies being hung from bridges and mass graves. I mean, the biggest mass grave had um, the remains of 298 people in it. Uh, and that was in a, in, in a bunch of fields next to a housing area. When they were uncovering it, there was a stench of bodies that were going into this housing area. So, so a very, a very weird mix of violence and extreme violence comparable to a war, but not recognized as a war. Um, and, and not making sense quite like an, like a regular war. It's definitely some kind of weird um, hybrid 21st century uh, conflict that's, that's playing out. With the cartels now, let's say tomorrow the United States said, you know what, we're going to decriminalize everything. Yeah. All drugs are legal. Thank you. Are they so big and so got their fingers in so many different things. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that would make a dent in their, their money, but like, are they just like too big to fail type of thing? Like they could just stick around as cartels, just working with like guns or would that actually hurt them quite a bit? Yeah. If, uh, so first when we talk about the drug policy area, 
uh, in the drug policy language, you have you have decriminalized and you have legalized being two different yeah. concepts that are related. Yeah, so so decriminalize is when you say you know, and it's more decriminalize is more of a strategy for users. So you like if you catch somebody um, with say a couple of grams of cocaine, a uh, bit you know, a stash of heroin for their personal use rather than saying we're going to prosecute you and send you to prison on criminal charges for that drug possession. We're going to, it's going to be like, um, you know, not a criminal fine. It could be a civil fine or it could just be a slap on the wrist or send you to rehab or whatever. Um, so that, you know, they did that in Portugal, um, I would say fairly successfully. Um, in the United States, there's certainly, they started trying this now in um, Oregon, and there's a certain move in the United States. We'll see. We'll see. And it's, it's, it's difficult. There's some issues around that in the US with the amount of kind of homeless people and, and drug thing. But I think, you know, I think, you know, I don't think people should be sent to prison for being drug addicts. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they should be locked up for that. Uh, but uh, but but then legalize is different because also you have the cartels as there was like um, moving drugs by the tons. And decriminalized doesn't extend to that. You still normally would bust somebody if they've got a ton of heroin or a ton of cocaine. Uh, a ton of heroin is a lot, just in smaller quantities, but anyway, a ton of ton of cocaine or a whole, you know, huge amounts of heroin or whatever. But if 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 we were to talk about drug legalization itself, uh, and it's you know hypothetical, it's very difficult to see how you do this exactly. But if 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 really the entire black market of drugs, which the United, which the UN Estimates is worth over $300 billion a year globally. Uh, the US uh, records over $150 billion in the United States. Then, sure, yeah, that would take huge amounts of money out of, way, out of cartels. And they enter, they're into a bunch of other businesses. They're into um, people smuggling, meaning mm-hmm. that the undocumented migrants who go to the United States, people who are trying to sneak into the United States are paying um, cartels. They're paying uh, polleros or coyotes, who are the ones who smuggle them, um, take them over and they're paying them who, um, who are then paying the cartels. They're into uh, theft of oil. They're into product piracy. They're into sex trafficking. They're into wildcat mining. Um, they're into extortion, kidnapping. So a whole bunch of crimes. But still, if the drugs were removed, that would radically change the nature of organized crime. And that would take away huge resources for these organizations. The question really, though, is it's not, when you when you get down to the nitty gritty of drug policy, it's not a simple button mm-hmm. that can be pressed. It's actually quite difficult how we move on. I, mean, I believe in drug policy reform, meaning I you know I believe that um, the war, the conceptual war on drugs, um, has failed. Um, you know, Richard Nixon declared that uh, just been fifty year anniversary. Um, in that time, I mean, he talked about it in very extremist kind of an abolitionist terms. We're going to abolish heroin from from the lives of Americans. There will be no heroin. Um, in after fifty years, we've got record deaths of overdose death in the United States, and we've got um, you know huge amounts of violence in Latin America, and also mm. violence linked to drug selling in American cities. But then, how do we move? Really, how do we actually move away from this? You know, really, what the thing? So, legalizing marijuana that's happened. But then how do we move beyond legalizing marijuana? I mean, we still need to move some way in legalizing marijuana. Um, there's still some way to go with that to really get that happen, you know, through in, in Mexico and so forth. But then how do we move uh, really? What then what do we do about heroin, cocaine, 
crystal meth? I, the answer is I don't know. We need to have that conversation and beginning, like, how do we reduce, you know, addiction? How do we try and actually get this stuff, uh, get this money? Okay. No, just because, I mean, like, that's just my thing. Like, if you take a look at the mafia as well, that originally started because of prohibition, pretty much. And then they were in everything. So, like, you know, it's once prohibition went away, it's not like the mafia went away. So, just wondering, like, you know, what would happen with these guys? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's a bunch of hardened criminals out there. They're not going to suddenly, like, um, you know, all, all become honest, honest people and, and do these, and they could do other crimes as well. What I do think is, if you look at the cartels in Mexico, and it is a huge industry with so many of these people working in this, they've been pumped with drug money for decades and decades, and they're still getting it now. Now, if when what they do, you could say, well, if they don't traffic drugs, they'll just turn to more violent predatory crimes like kidnapping. But actually, you've seen these areas where they'll do both. They'll do whatever they can get away with. So and they'll get money. So they'll be making on one side loads and loads of money from drugs. And then that money they've got, which can then buy loads of guns and can pay to corrupt, pay off police officers, and pay to train sicarios and pay the, the, the salaries of sicarios who, who, who are the gunmen. And then they've got all that power and guns and killers. And then, then they go on and do a bunch of kidnapping, extortion. Because they, so it's kind of, kind of, big, uh, you know, they do both. Now, kidnapping has gone down a little bit in Mexico the last, couple, the last five years or so because there's been an effort at least to create on a state level some more hardcore anti-kidnapping squads. And that makes them kick back a bit on the kidnapping, which is a good thing because kidnapping is a really brutal antisocial crime. But they still get away with a whole bunch of stuff. Now, if drugs are out, the, out, the, out of the equation, and you know, from a law enforcement point of view, you're dealing with things like extortion. I mean, that, that these, are, these are solvable crimes. I mean, extortion doesn't happen in a big way in, in, say, Canada or the United States because you've got, you also have to try and create decent police forces in Mexico, in Latin America. But you've got an easier thing of solving extortion because then if their shopkeeper is going to say, I don't want to pay extortion, I'm to, if I can go to the, a decent police force, go to them and they can go and stop these guys. And it's, it's kind of, they have to like um, expose themselves to collect extortion money. So you've got a better chance and, and, and these organizations will not have the gel putting them together. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong, Mexico still has an enormous law enforcement problem and, 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 and drug policy reform is not the only way out of this. But I do think in terms of the violence in Latin America, in terms of the, the kind of failure on war on drugs, we have to try and figure out a better way forward I don't, you know, we've been stumbling through with a kind of a policy of drugs that's not working for many years. Now, again, I, I understand these, are, these things are not easy, but I do believe on the drug policy issue. This is one of the issues that we, we could try and move forward on as societies politically. I don't think this is, a, is an issue which we're divided on that badly ideolo ideologically anymore i think you know if you look at for example marijuana legalization there was big support for it in even in like mississippi they legalized medical marijuana i mean you find conservatives you find libertarians you find uh people who are you know on the left who can all or tradition has been you know on the left or all kinds of people 
who can come together on this issue. So this is something we think we probably can make progress on, whereas we might not be able to on some, on some other issues. Look, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I just got a couple of last questions for you. The first one is this. Now, I'm again, going to compare this to Afghanistan. Now, there was a story uh, about the Canadian PRT just outside of Kandahar. So the Kandahar airfield was outside the city. Inside the city, you had the Canadian PRT. Now, the Canadian PRT was apparently next to a former warlord's compound. Mm. And a shell got lobbed over the Canadian PRT and landed in the Warlord's compound. Now, the Warlord found out who did this and made a summary example of them. And then the Canadian base was never shelled again, apparently, because they were more afraid of the Warlord than they were of the Canadian military. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you know, the military has rules of engagement, you know, whatever you want to say. And so... Was there something like that with the cartels? Like, you know, like you were saying they're control cities and stuff like that. Like, yeah, you know, if they wanted no crime in the city they were in for whatever reason, you know, like, okay, I don't want anyone else or only have the sanctioned crime that they sanctioned. Like, yeah. Like what was the fear like of them compared to the fear of law enforcement? No, absolutely. That's a very good point. I think, and I think understanding uh, the mechanics of Afghanistan um, gives or, or, or East, you know, all Eastern Europe or or Africa and this idea of warlords. I mean, in my second book, I call it gangster warlords, and I believe that they, they, you know, if you look right across the Americas, from from Jamaica to Brazil to Mexico to Central America, there's a kind of a certain kind of these gangster warlords. I believe. So yeah, absolutely. Um, there's 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 in fact they they run their own. Um, justice systems in many of these places or they, they, they you know like you see in the favelas in brazil um i, I had an interview there with one of the leaders of favela and he would talk about how he would rule if somebody came to him and said um somebody raped my sister then he would say okay now bring me the person and then we're going to decide what we're going to do um are we going to kill them are we going to like um exile them or are we going to mutilate them uh recently there's a case of a guy accused of rape in a town in mexico where they uh they had a video of uh, putting dogs on him to, to, to eat his genitals. Um, it was their punishment for, for, for an alleged rape there. So yeah, people are terrified of that, of the gangsters doing that kind of stuff. People are terrified of, of justice by gangsters or, or, or you know, them saying something like, you know, there was curfews imposed during COVID summers. And some of them saying, we're going we're to impose cur uh, curfews. And if anyone, um, you know, they answer to us. But then these guys, still the cartel guys, are still going to like run around the streets. You know, everyone else is on curfew, but we're still moving around. So yeah, totally. Now, if you look at El Salvador right now, and uh, Nayib Bukele, uh, the president of El Salvador, he's reduced violence massively, um, and it's almost certainly uh, because of, of a pact, uh, a truce between gangs, of, of, of the, and the government involved in that. The gang saying we're going to, we're going to down the violence so we're going to stop the, the gangs killing each other you know we're going to tell up tell up if you can't you know so we reduce the violence in a big way uh, and then it, uh, his public discourse is saying no that's not the case it's my law enforcement but but you know there's basically very strong evidence that, that that's the case so yeah i mean it's true um it's also very difficult how how you know how should governments deal with extremely violent criminals who have commit murder who commit extortion, commit kidnapping. In El Salvador, one of the criticisms is, I talked to one market trader there, that in El Salvador, there's massive extortion by the gangs. 
to say, well, they stop the gangs killing, but they, they're still letting them shake people down. So you're going to give them a license to these gangs to shake down all these regular people, and they've got no choice but to still pay the gangs. You're empowering these criminal organizations. Um, another racket they're involved in across the Americas, uh, but you've seen this in El Salvador, seen it in Jamaica, uh, is uh, pressuring people in their neighborhoods to vote for certain political parties. So you say, okay, everyone, everyone here's got to vote, you know, so that, that way. Um, in Mexico as well, and sometimes saying, give, give me your, your, your credential, give me your vote, give me your credential, and we'll take it and we'll make the vote for you. You saw, you saw that in the most recent election in Mexico as well. Uh, so, so yeah, um, it is true they are they have become power. And should you sh is a solution then to say, well, we've got to recognise these these are political actors in a way. Mm -hmm. um, we have to recognise that reality that they're political actors with political power and, and with the power of the violence in these areas, and we have to say deal with them. But then, how can you you know can you? And it's not like and the difference is, you know, whereas before with political actors like, say, in Colombia, you had, you know, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a guerrilla army, but you say, well, these are people who have a political cause or, you know, um, so we can we can deal with them um, because they, they, they're, they're ideologues. We, we can we can make peace treaties and so forth, but you, know, you can really make peace treaties with the Sinaloa cartel or the Jalisco New Generation cartel okay. and say, we're going to give, you know, allow... But but I don't, I don't know. These are these this. It, it's I mean right now. There's been in the last twenty years um, in the new millennium more than two million murders in Latin America and the Caribbean. I've said it's the most it's the most murderous region in the world. Um, there's been more bodies dropped in in uh, Latin America and the Middle East. It's it's in the Americas forty seven and fifty the most murderous cities. Um, we've got to look into this stuff. It's kind yeah. of been um, hasn't really in some ways received. A, the global attention it deserves in terms of the violence and the implications of that violence. Um, and, and this is, a, you know, this is the issue of, of refugees going to the United States, which yeah. is at the center of politics in the United States and, and, and Trump and so forth. Yeah, no, that's the, the, the whole thing. It's, I mean, there's a big domino effect. Okay. The last thing I want to talk to you about is the, the corruption. Cause you'd mentioned this a couple of times. Now I'm going to give you a silly example. So like my family's from India yeah, and I've always said, you know, like places like India, the corruption is more honest. And what I meant by that was, okay, my grandfather's house got robbed. So someone burgled his house. He went to the police, made a complaint. And a couple of weeks later, a few days later, they called him. They said, we caught this guy and we think we found your stuff. So there's a table full of stuff. And I asked my grandfather, do you see your things? And my grandfather pointed out a few of the things that were stolen from his house. And so he's sitting and waiting and the cops come back after a few minutes and they go, okay, we spoke to the guy. He's admitting to everything else, but he won't admit to your stuff. If you give him a few hundred rupees, he'll... So now this, these are the cops asking my grandfather for a bribe or whatever, right? Like it's, just, it's obviously not the criminal, but that's what I mean. Like everyone kind of factors that in into the day-to-day -day business. Like we had that in Afghanistan as well. Like when we needed our passports or you needed something, there was actually a bribe fee that was like, you know, costed in to whatever you had to go get stuff done because you had to you had inevitably bribe people. So that was like actually factored in. So is that the day-to-day -day attitudes of people in like Mexico and Latin America? Like, I mean, is it just expecting that there's, okay, if I go to the butcher, I have to make sure he doesn't put his thumb on the scale. I have to make sure you know, like, like that kind of stuff. Like, is that just a normal everyday occurrence? So, you know, with corruption, uh, which is one of the big challenges facing Latin America mm -hmm. and facing a lot of regions of the world. 
uh, and it was described as uh, one one very good book uh, from forty years ago. Um, but yeah, there's this phrase there talking about oil and glue, corruption being the oil and glue, and so the way the machinery of Mexico kick you know ticks over is with corruption, like you're saying. Like you get someone to do something, a bureaucrat to do something, they won't, they won't do it for you, but you give them a bribe and they'll do it for you. So you need a license um, to open a bar. You know, you've got to pay a bribe to get to get it, but you pay the bribe. And that's kind of getting someone to do their job. Um, now, that can work to an extent with some things, but then when you get an entire police force working for a cartel, um, now also there is a you know, famous phrase, plato plomo, which is um, silver or lead, you know, like this idea of, you, you know, do you want to accept um, the silver of the bribe or the lead of the bullet? Um, actually, you see both the pressure of both of those um, being on so that, you know, people are, you know, they're, they're a policeman, you know, you're going to work with the cartel and, and draw, draw you know, some money or you're going to fight them and be shot dead. You know, what does it mean then when cartels become so powerful? And so it's kind of elements of state capture. Now, I would say it's parts of the Mexican state have been captured by criminal interests and criminal organizations and so forth. And parts of it can kind of function normally. You know, the education system can function normally. The um, electricity grid can function normally. The, uh, um, the health system can function normally. And then you've got like, uh, police forces and security interests and that being being run and, and engaged with these criminal cartels. You know, is that sustainable? That creates a pretty brutal, rotten way. That's not a good way to live. Um, that kind of system um, and and the kind of uh, it's also there. Yeah, police will, will want bribes. They'll they'll like say, you know, your relatives, you know, your dad's been murdered. Give us some money, and we'll find out who did it. Mm. You know, you know, that, that's it's a pretty. It's a pretty. Um, rotten, rotten way for things for things to be. Um, it's not a good way, and there is efforts, I think, across Latin America to confront corruption. And we're talking about also corruption going up, you know, up to presidential levels. Um, you've had a whole bunch of presidents from across Latin America convicted um, or accused, or you know, currently with charges that haven't been resolved, or other broader accusations, including high officials in Mexico. I mean, you had the guy who was the, the former um, he head of public security in Mexico during the administration of Felipe Calderon, currently in the United States on drug trafficking charges. Um, you know, and he was like one of, the, one of the real architects of the fight against cartels in prison on, 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 on trafficking charges. So um, you've got efforts to try and combat this, um, you know, and, and different things from aggressive prosecutors going after. Unfortunately, these efforts haven't resolved these things and in some ways have uh, sown up a lot of discord in countries um, like because you know, you'll get a heavy, when you get the, the system that's so rotten, you've got targets everywhere. So you get a prosecutor, it's like, who do I go after? Oh, I go after my political enemies on corruption charges, but I leave some other people. So you use charges selectively. And when you've got, whenever everybody's guilty, you just, you know, but you're only <laughs> prosecuting certain cases. Um, you have things where suddenly everyone's scared to do business because suddenly they're going after and then no one wants to invest because if I invest, I'm going to get caught up and get done for corruption. You know, if, if I try and invest, I have to get involved in corruption. So that creates paradoxes. 
Um, you know, is it more with foreign, um, you know, like in Guatemala, you had a lot of foreign pressure to create prosecutors kind of answerable to foreign um, international organizations saying we're kind of independent and funded by international organizations um, going after national corruption. Um, but then national people are going to throw, kick him out of the country. You know, do we want to have, you know, f- you know people not, you know, losing our national sovereignty or, or people, you know, corrupt people saying, you know, we don't, we don't want these people breathing down our necks. So, so extremely difficult. And again, not easy answers. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's not a good, there, 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 there's corrupt situations you can live with and they can be okay. But when it's living with this level of violence, and, and, and I mean, Mexico, is a beautiful country that has so much. Mm. You know, Mexico's got it all. Uh, Mexico's got beautiful beaches from Baja California to the Pacific to the Caribbean. It's got jungles. It's got mountains. It's got um, amazing food. It's got, you know, history and pyramids, and it's got amazing people. You know, Mexico's got it all. It's got a beautiful culture. But the real thing that makes this, you know, it's a real tragedy that violence is there. Um, and it makes it very tough, and that and corruption is part of what's uh, funding and keeping that violent violence going. Well, thanks a lot, Alan. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been really interesting. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, um, you know where they can get your books, and I'll put the links in the description as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I've got a weird name. It's spelled so my my, my name is spelled I O N, uh, and then my second name G R I L L O, Yoan Grillo. Um, but if you type that in, you know, into Google, you can see a bunch of my stuff. You can see my website, um, yoangrillo.com. Uh, books, uh, you know, you can find them on Amazon or there's links there mm-hmm. to a bunch of in- or indie booksellers. Um, and I have some some videos on YouTube where you can see some of my stuff. And uh, um, yeah, yeah, all all, uh, all chat and, and uh, <laughs> communications appreciated. Well, well, again, thank you very much for coming on. It was great talking to you. Great talking mm-hmm. to you. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.